propaganda works two ways, positive and negative. China is the biggest threat, not only to NATO, but to the Western civilization. If Russians uh, go in, it's loud, everyone knows. But if China enters, it's quiet. Welcome to The Convergence, the Army's Mad Scientist podcast. I'm Matt Sanisbert of the Mad Scientist team, and I'll be joined in just a moment by Luke Shabro, Deputy Director of Mad Scientist. Mad Scientist is a U.S. Army initiative that continually explores the future of warfare, challenges assumptions, and collaborates with academia, industry, and government. You can connect with us through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, or subscribe to the blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. On today's episode, we're talking with Dr. Joanna Shakira, international lawyer specializing in Pacific law, maritime law, and the law of armed conflict. We'll be talking with her today about the legal aspects of multi-domain operations and protection of civilians, what we can learn from the war in Ukraine as it pertains to policy and legal implications for the U.S., and her concerns about security and policy in the Indo-Pacific. As always, the views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the Department of Defense, Department of the Army, Army Futures Command, or Training and Doctrine Command. Let's get started. Joanna, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. It is my pleasure and um, happy to uh, have this podcast today on the Valentine's Day, actually. <laughs> That's right. So can you give us a little bit of an introduction to who you are and give us a little bit about your background? I am an international lawyer, originally from Poland. I work uh, currently uh, in um, Norway at the Faculty of Law University of uh, Bergen, but also as a legal advisor and uh, external legal consultant for the NATO Center of Excellence of Stability Policing in Vicenza, Italy but also to Finnish Defense Forces International Center in Helsinki. Uh, so um, I, I do uh, mainly law of armed conflict, uh, but also law of the sea. So I, I move forward uh, maritime uh, security. Um, I did my PhD in New Zealand at the um, Faculty of Law, Victoria University of Wellington. Uh, so uh, my uh, area of expertise uh, is also in the Pacific, so Oceania countries uh, and great power competition in, in that region. Fantastic. We're so happy to have you on. Uh, Joanna, you're an international lawyer, but you also have your PhD in public policy from the Warsaw School of Economics. You speak so many languages and you've got seemingly innumerable skills and you've worked across the globe and especially the last several years across Europe and the Indo-Pacific region. Can you tell our audience what you work on the most and have really worked on recently? Sure. Thank you for this uh, question. Uh, and uh, I would say that all of my experience in um, diplomacy, um, in, in uh, as a legal advisor in, in military, uh, that was all connected with uh, international law from the perspective of, of law of armed conflict. And I will intentionally use this uh, name instead of international humanitarian law because uh, i i well i admire what my humanitarian friends and colleagues are are doing but at the end of the day uh, for our enemies for perpetrator um humanitarian uh, norms uh, means nothing so me as a legal advisor is to advise the commander how to accomplish military uh, aim using the legal possibilities so this is uh, what I'm trying to achieve, uh, to, 
to make aware diplomats, um, military um, decision makers, um, how to use law for their own benefit. Because I working um, with um, NATO representatives, with, with cadets in, in many countries, they always roll their eyes when they hear law. Why do we need law and all of that? So for me, I make this emphasize not only on the law as a discipline, but also in this context of society. And this is example what we have now in Ukraine, that those are two countries uh, fighting with one another, but then again, we must understand the cultural context, the societal context, because as I read it a few days ago, that was the phrase, uh, rephrasal of um, a commonly known sentence that culture eats um, geopolitics for breakfast. Um, because uh, when I read some, you know, analysis from Western experts who have no idea about the Central European context about the war, it's it's nothing. You must understand the initial ideas, concepts, values, uh, why uh, countries or nations, they, they go to war, what they are able to sacrifice, why they would go and, and you know, continue this war. This is very important. So I always use this uh, term of legal culture. Legal culture is very important, but still neglected all the time because we must understand that there are some specific values which are appreciated by given societies, but to their neighboring countries, those um, values might mean nothing, or in contrary, they might be even like defensive ones. So this is very important to to um, talk about legal culture as well. I love that you brought that up because we've talked on the podcast before and throughout a lot of work we've done in Mad Scientist and looking into the future operational environment. And we've talked about this asymmetry of ethics, that this idea that uh, what we consider to be highly ethical or moral um, could be very different from what our adversaries think about. And your passion for this really comes through when you're talking about it. What are you trying to achieve really? What what does success look like to you in this venue? Yes, thank you for, for this comment and, and question. And uh, totally, I always uh, say that uh, in international relations, but also in international law, there is no morality, there is no ethics, because what for me is saint and valuable for you might be stupid, might be uh, illegal even. Uh, look at the countries, uh, what kind of uh, values they protect, what kind of uh, values they codify through their legal national systems. But on the other hand, there are so many uh, different approaches to um, civil uh, law, to criminal law, but also to uh, law of armed conflict. Yes, we are trying to build the bridge between uh, the countries, uh, but yet this is very, very important to, to focus on the differences, why countries, they see differently. I think this is very important uh, so we could uh, take the lessons from the history, um, which sounds uh, probably obvious, but please mind that the recent uh, exchange uh, on, on LinkedIn, uh, I, I wrote... Uh, because uh, someone um, wrote about Nazi occupation of part of uh, Europe, and I corrected, look, that was Nazi German, German occupation. Germans started the war against Poles, okay? Because we understand that, we know, but for, I don't know, our children, further generation, who would be Nazis? 
and because of this lack of uh, context now um, there are some silly uh, mistakes like Polish death camps no they were German built at the occupied Poland right it must be repeated it must be clear because when we talk about systems of values between west and east authoritarian regimes this is all have its roots in the culture in the systems of uh, religion or lack of religion uh, philosophy so this is very important to be um, aware what might happen and the war in ukraine for me being polish for other countries in Central and Eastern Europe is nothing new. We know exactly the Russian mindset of uh, imperialism. I was invited in Norway two days after the outburst of this war to, uh, to give an interview to the biggest newspaper in Norway. And guess what? They didn't publish it because I said that Russia has always been imperialistic. And they wrote me, no, we cannot assume that. I was like, of course we can, of course we can. Another example, I was talking to my uh, Western um, colleagues, officers, and uh, I said, look guys, prepare for killing civilians by Russian troops. And they told me, no, Joanna, that's unacceptable. Uh, collateral damages will be happening in every war. I was like, seriously, collateral damages? For Russian army, meaning Soviet army, because it totally the same those are standards those are standards so for me this is very important to to give this context that when I do my research when I teach or also comment something on social media and and people um, they write oh this is uh, Putin's war uh, and I'm like guys no because after Putin there will be another person but those are Russian soldiers who are killing, raping, and stealing. They were doing the same during the war and after, when they said that they liberated Poland and other countries in the Eastern Bloc. So this is nothing new. So again, this is very important to understand the culture, so perhaps to predict uh, the, the further actions, including the, the process of, of war. Yeah, Joanna, that's a, a, a great point and an, an important point to, to keep in mind for this. And, and I want to go to, uh, you know, another point that you've been kind of foot stomping here, um, the cultural differences. And, and you've been talking about legal cultural differences, but you've been exploring the concept of West and East, how many in geopolitics, social science and defense, how we kind of divide the world. And, you know, the West has kind of a shared distinctive values and, and plurality of governing and legal systems. But should we still be using those terms East and West? Is the collective of the West an important thing to keep together through alliances, treaties and more? Or has it always been kind of a misnomer? Uh, very good question. And, and again, I don't use those terms to divide. I use those terms to make uh, people aware, to understand that we are not the same. We would like that. But when we assume we are the same, we are losing. Somebody else is taking over that naivety uh, we are having. And really, I, I've been experiencing that a lot um, when I uh, also yeah, teach uh, at this course of protection of civilians in, in Helsinki. We have uh, uh, officers from Africa. So for them, you know, the, this, this concept uh, is also, I wouldn't say like an abstract uh, thing. 
but but this is important that Ukraine also before the war it was perceived as a eastern country not inside the EU not inside NATO and now they have so much to gain that they will not make silly mistakes and here I will be very uh, direct as always I am that when we talk about the prisoners of war and tortures and we've seen all those videos what uh, Russian troops did I ask do you think Ukrainian uh, soldiers did not that to uh, Russians of course they did because propaganda works two ways positive and negative uh, Ukrainians they want to get to the Western culture society in the sense of institutions but we must remember that the level of corruption and nepotism is the highest in uh, Europe this is not white and black uh, of course we all support Ukraine this is a sovereign nation and it must have its uh, territorial integrity definitely yes but always remember um, about the context and when we talk about West and East, we talk about the values, democracy, transparency, the rule of law. How about Turkey? This is very interesting example. I always uh, say about Turkey in NATO. Many, many times I've seen Turkish representatives being treated not equally as other NATO members. I'm not saying that was precisely in NATO, but also during other uh, occasion in other institutions. So my uh, point is that if we want to keep Turkey close, because yes, we do need them, they are in a very strategic position, geopolitically, economically. So we must keep them because otherwise they will go to another alliance where they are being treated equally. The same with India. And here my research in Indo-Pacific this is why we are struggling so badly uh, through uh, different alliances, treaties, political declarations with Quad, for example, with Australia and India to keep them closer because otherwise they would be more than happy to cooperate with China. So this is very important that when we really play on those you know, sensitive national interests of dignity, uh, of identity, this is important to win the heart and souls, because otherwise, why should states follow some, you know, law is artificial. Law is created by, by us, by states uh, to um, give some order to international relations. So, yes, this is this is very important. And still, this is not well researched. This is always somehow neglected. Uh, but uh, I, I hope it, it will be changing. No, I think you're absolutely right that it's extremely important when it comes to those alliances and building those partnerships and alliances, because uh, as former Secretary of Defense and, and retired General Mattis uh, had said, we will not go to war alone. We will go to war with our allies. You know, I want to pivot real quick. We've we focused before on multi-domain operations or MDO many times on this podcast uh, because of its status as a future operating concept for the U.S. Army. Uh, we've even had Lieutenant General, now retired, Eric Wesley, largely considered to be the founder of MDO on this podcast. 
You recently wrote about the legal aspects of MDO and protection of civilians in MDO. And this is a very unique look as we've not really seen this heavily explored until you wrote on it. What did you find in your research and exploration? And what should we be thinking about more in the legal aspects and protection of civilians in MDO and also JADC2 as a, a major operating concept for the DOD? Thank you for this question. Of course, I've uh, listened to that podcast with General Wesley. That was uh very informative um, and uh, yes yes from my perspective as an international lawyer I would say that legal aspects they are not um, being treated as something valuable rather uh, soldiers officers uh, decision makers they're like okay then we have to tackle the, the legal issues as well or okay let's uh, in, invite somebody talking about the, the law uh, but then my input here is to teach, is to make aware that law must be used as a tool, as a beneficial tool. It's not only that, oh, because of the law, we cannot do that. We have to wait this. We have to postpone that. We have to check all of that. So all the military mission has to, you know, accomplish all those uh, long list of Geneva conventions, hack conventions, and so on and so forth. No, I'm saying Use this law to protect yourself. Use those uh, regulations uh, in rules of engagements and all other uh, tiny green book soldiers are, are given when they are deployed for your own benefit. The law is, yes, I understand that um, international law system is so different than our national systems. Uh, for example, uh, there is uh, no element of a sanction inside a norm. Yes, sanctions can be brought by a separate treaty, and also there is no mandatory uh, judiciary system nor no executive system in international. There is no international government. Yes, in, in doctrine, we say we have United Nations Security Council, but who's there? China and Russia voting no when there is uh, any resolution against them. So this is very colonial uh, structure. This is very weak. And I really hope that that will be changed. But before that, I, I think that this is important to, uh, to, to be aware when we plan exactly um, multi-domain operations and when we really look at the law, international law, as something that is beneficial for us, but that, again, it must be employed with the cultural context. Because um, I always take this example, because this is, again, very fresh from Ukraine, that um, one of the principles of international law, law of armed conflict, is to protect civilians, not to intentionally target them. So we take this goodwill of two fighting uh, parties uh, and we rely on that goodwill. So this is what Ukrainians did when they wrote big signs of Dieti, so children in Russian, uh, on the top of the buildings or before uh, theaters to, to point at Russian uh, soldiers that don't target those buildings because there are people under specific status of international humanitarian law. We all know what Russians did, right? They targeted those marked places. So in a sense that we want to uh, obey the law and it's fantastic, but don't expect 
the other party will do the same because we had already so many examples that the other party perpetrator, they already broke the law and they will continue to do so. Another example, how about humanitarian corridors? Yes, in international law, there is this norm suggestion that uh, parties should uh, give a notice in advance in which uh, routes the uh, humanitarian convoy uh, will go. But then again, Ukrainians did it. And what Russians did, they mined those humanitarian routes. So in a sense, we must be aware of that when we plan at every stage of, uh, of military operation that another party we are fighting with, they are not stupid. That's another thing that we like to downgrade our enemy. All those memes, jokes uh, we uh, we see on internet against Russia. Yeah, ha ha ha, funny. But guess what? Russians are still in Ukraine. So this is very important that we still look down on the enemy um, also on, on China, but how effective they are regardless of uh, how disrespectful we think about them. No, that's that's all um, extremely valuable insights, Joanna. And you've also written a lot lately about international law, of course, being an international lawyer, um, including maritime law or law of the sea, uh, security and policy in the Indo-Pacific, which obviously is an extremely important region for us as China is the facing threat in that region. What developments have concerned you in this region? And what do you think the West needs to focus on more and or do better in that vein in the Indo-Pacific? Well, uh, and, and here this is why I really enjoy working with Americans, uh, because uh, you are really straightforward and you like to call things as they really are, while us Europeans, we are, I would say, uh, more diplomatic, uh, a bit naive. Uh, and another thing is being reliable of uh, on um, uh, cheap uh, natural resources from Russia and trade with China. So uh, even like today, there was some crazy exchange again on, on social media. And I'm always like, why are you really uh, not seeing the, the, the easiest things? And uh, last year I was on a conference uh, somewhere in Europe and I, I said it clearly and I always repeat that China is the biggest threat. China is the biggest threat not only to NATO but to the Western civilization. And all my American friends, they were like, yeah, it's obvious, good that you said it. And one of the um, European officer, he said, no, Joanna, we should not pinpoint. I was like, of course we should. Of course we should. Okay. Another example from uh, last week, I, I spoke to some officers, British one, and, and he said, uh, why should we talk about maritime law? Uh, and China, it's it's too far from Europe. It's too far. It is not NATO's problem. I was like, whoa, if you really say that now, then it's it's not good because it really shows the weakness that we still see China as s some country far, far, but they are already everywhere in Africa. They are already everywhere in Oceania. I was uh, sailing uh, across the Pacific Ocean with, with my students. I was on those Pacific Island countries. Um, and uh, like Chinese, they, they, they use this um, checkbook policy. They um, send the, their uh, engineers uh, 
uh, architects uh, everywhere. They uh, get their families. So the 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 way uh, China works is so different than Russian. If if Russians uh, go in, it's loud. Everyone knows. But if China enters, it's quiet. So that's why uh, some countries they don't want to admit that it's already happening now so so for me this is the biggest threat that countries they don't see that very often the military threat starts very many decades ago from changes in uh legal um system changes in economic dependence on of course beijing and all those uh, societal changes that uh, in our uh, civilization, we value individual rights, uh, but in the Eastern uh, regimes, anyhow, human life is uh, worth zero. So that's why Putin is sending all the troops and he will not even hesitate to send more. We like to use our Western lands and they said, Oh, how can he do that? Those poor, you know, soldiers sending to, to war to Ukraine, they don't want that. But then again, this is us trying to understand the perpetrator with our values, our lens. And this is very, very bad. This is wrong for us because that actually threatens the, the stability and the security. So, so this is what we are observing now. And in the Pacific, I am very happy that uh, uh, the U.S. is back after two decades of being in Afghanistan and uh, Iraq. Um, the, the Western values must be brought back to the Pacific. Um, developing is, is not even the word. They are very underdeveloped. They are uh, in a big need for an alliance, partnership, so now this is time to decide in which way they would go, either to follow uh, Chinese rule. And again, China, when I say China, I mean Chinese government killing, torturing, raping, um, fighting against minorities. So all what is illegal, what is uh, wrong, what is uh, against our values in our Western uh, system. So this is very important. And to close this this question, uh, I I remember I had very uh, funny um, conversation with again uh, some of my my colleagues um, in in Europe, and they said, um, yeah, but those Americans they they only want to um, keep their military power in the in the Pacific, and I reply, oh, so you you would rather have Chinese military power there? silence. So yes, yes, we need to protect our values and who else than the, the bigger maritime power and army power than the U.S.? No, I think that's critically important and I appreciate all the points made and uh, we, we could not be further in agreement on this. You know, I, I want to pivot just because we could talk to you for hours about this and just really appreciate all the amazing insights that you've brought. Uh, but in addition to all this scholarly, academic, and national security work that you do, you've also poured so much heart and effort in mentoring and empowering women in, in national security and international relations. How did you start doing that? And why is it so important to you? It is important because, uh, first of all, I'm a woman. So it's uh, it's been very hard, uh, even today, I'm not saying everywhere, 
but also I will not say that Western um, countries are crystal clear and Eastern are not, because this is anyhow a true. It's a matter of culture, of the person, uh, of uh, maybe missions they've been deployed to when when uh, finally women taking their own perspective, which is different. Okay, this is different, and that's why it's needed. We are different. We are equal, but we are different, and this is the the magic. This is uh, the beauty we can contribute from from our own perspective. Yet, when I had my uh, gender uh, and and genet, uh, courses in UN and NATO, I always uh, you know uh, looked at at uh, male part of the group, and they were like, yeah, okay, if we really have to. And I know this, as I said at the beginning of this uh, interview, with uh, my legal perspective. Uh, people, civilians, uh, military, they are talking, but when lawyer enters, there's always, okay, now we will have to listen to that. And the same with uh, gender uh, issues. But then again, this is important because this is beneficial. It's not that we do this because we have to, because somebody forced that because we have NATO, women, peace uh, and security agenda. But actually, this is really important to have the clear, the most broad perspective on the problem. So as I was struggling myself, how to get through in this, uh, well, still um, uh, masculine environment. And uh, this is important to be authentic. This is important to believe in yourself and know that, yes, you are here because you can contribute in a very good professional manner. So it all started that uh, some young uh, women from different countries, uh, Brazil, France, uh, Ukraine, um, India, they, they started to write me. Um, emails or DMs, uh, Joanna would like to be like you and I will develop my career. I was like, oh, well, like me, like I'm I'm still at the beginning of, of my career. Yes, I've accomplished something, but it's I'm, I'm not there yet. So I thought, okay, well, why don't we have a Zoom? Why don't we have a call? I'm here for you. So I, uh, I, I found it very empowering. Also, happy and satisfying for myself because then I um, write letter of references for, for those women, not only women, but mostly. And then I see they uh, start to mingle with my students, uh, my colleagues, my friends. They create uh, conferences together, seminars. Uh, so that really makes me proud. And I see that uh, Yes, this is what we should do. We should uh, support one another because the more amount of uh, perspectives we bring to the table, then it's easier to work on it instead of focusing on one uh, perspective, one person or one gender. We are in wholehearted agreement with you uh, from Army Mad Scientists, and we try really hard uh, to be inclusive and include diversity, not only when we think about demographics in general, but just that diversity and thought and different backgrounds. And I think, you know, we had Dr. Rita Konaev uh, on early in the podcast. And one of the things she said was we have to look at a lack of diversity as a national security threat as well. Uh, back to your point previously, where you said, you know, we have these blind spots uh, because we think that's not how we would do it uh, in terms of usually the United States and, and Western thought as well. But uh, same for having a different background. Uh, women have experienced something very different in national security fields, as you know, 
And so if we don't include that, uh, we leave ourselves blind. And so I just really appreciate uh, and, and we all appreciate the work that you do and, and so many others uh, to empower, uh, especially young women in this field that that traditionally has been too male dominated. Thank you. Thank you very much. Look for this. I appreciate that. Joanna, great job. Um, we're going to transition now to our rapid fire questions. So we ask these to all of our guests. Uh, they're always the same and it kind of gives us a little insight to the person behind the opinions here. So the first question is, what trend or technology keeps you up at night? <laughs> well, I'm a very boring person, so at night I sleep. So there's nothing that uh, keeps me up. But uh, when I think about the trends, uh, I would say law in artificial intelligence. My question is, um, what kind of responsibility would have robots, machines, unmanned vehicles. Um, who would write treaty on that? Uh, or should we stick to our national uh, internal legal orders? But then how about responsibility for, for example, making, committing war crimes, genocide by those um, robots, machines? Because even now, um, again, very politically correct, and I'm very straightforward. As I said, I don't like to, uh, you know, overuse international humanitarian law. I, I always underline I am a lawyer from inter law of armed conflict. So responsibility to protect. Wow, fantastic. But first of all, this is not legally binding. This is only political um, decision inside uh, UN, not even NATO UN. And secondly, this is to protect your own population, not to others. So not when you are deployed, not towards uh, host nations, uh, populace. So this is uh, what um, drives me crazy that the technology is moving so fast, but the law, we are still in uh, 1948. Because when I read some analysis by other international lawyers about law of armed conflict, they quote Geneva Conventions, and it's fantastic, but it's about how many postcards or letters can a POW send from a camp. And I'm like, seriously, this is anyhow applicable in the 21st century. So yes, this is my frustration. Yeah, it sounds like that might keep you up at night. Um, and and we found that to be true uh, Always, technology always outpaces uh, the legal and policy advancements. Um, that, that comes true time and time again. So our, our second question is, what's something about you that you're willing to share on the podcast that most people might not know? Um, a very hard uh, question. Um, maybe that, for example, now I am in North Macedonia, again, very politically correct uh, uh, interference to national uh, <laughs> relations because, uh, yeah, the, the name of the country was Macedonia. But I like to understand the legal culture from inside. So I've been to Russia, I've been to Ukraine many times, uh, I've been to Transnistria, uh, and that gives me the clear vision of what is important for the society. What kind of problems do they struggle with? Is it easy to go abroad? Is it easy to send your kids to school? Or how further can you go with education? 
Uh, if you cannot find work, what would you do? How high the level of crime is it? How is not? When I was in Brazil for uh, one month, I also discovered that living in favelas, I decided not to stay in a hotel because that would not give me the chance to understand the society, to understand the enormous um, division in, uh, in society, again, based on uh, um, uh, issues. Uh, the, the way the crime, unfortunately, keeps uh, your family going, because if you don't pay the cartel, then either they will kill you or you will not buy bread to your children. So anyhow, it's to justify, but I'm always curious why the law cannot work. So what would be needed to change that? But again, to understand uh, how we should change the law, we must be aware how to change the society. Because given perfect laws, this is not enough. Trying to understand the society and the cultural issues through total immersion, boots on the ground, so to speak, you actually being there, living amongst them. Um, that's wonderful. So our last question, which may be the most difficult one, is what's your favorite movie? <laughs> well, I prefer books, but uh, if I were to choose, that would be hundred uh, percent Diviata Rata, so the Ninth Company, the Russian movie from two thousand five by Fyodor Bondarchuk. And by the way, this is also the favorite movie of Mr. Putin. That's very interesting. I am sure uh, most of you have have seen it, but if not, do this because it it shows uh, Afghanistan, Russian invasion, late nineteen uh, eighties, young, unexperienced uh, Russian cadets. And again, it's it's very important because, uh, of course, in many ways, it's uh, emphasizing uh, the, the the Russian will to help, uh, to deliberate what they did, for example, to Poland, uh, you know. Uh, but I, I think this is worthwhile watching uh, to to understand. Yes, a lot entertaining as well. So we've had foreign films listed before, but I don't think we've ever had a Russian film before. Seriously? So that Come was on. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, we're so grateful to have had you on, Joanna. It's really been an excellent conversation. Where can people follow you at? Right. So people, please, you can follow me on Twitter and uh, LinkedIn. The same as not my name and, and surname, Joanna Shakira. So, Joanna, we want to we want to thank you again for coming on the show and talking to us today. You know, it's always interesting to hear from people who are out there. Uh, you know, on the ground in different countries, exploring different cultures and different societies, especially when it comes to the legal side and the policy side of some of these defense and security issues, you know, that we're constantly exploring here stateside. So, Joanna, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you very much, uh, Martin Luke. Uh, that has been my pleasure. I'm really happy to be here. I've been listening to your podcast uh, and that was great to, to meet you in, in person, actually, in uh, early this uh, year. So thank you again. Thanks for listening to The Convergence. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Joanna Shakira, for talking with us. You can connect with Mad Scientist through Twitter at ArmyMadSci, and don't forget to subscribe to our blog, The Mad Scientist Laboratory, at madsciblog.tradoc.army.mil. Finally, if you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a rating or review on Apple, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you accessed it. This feedback helps improve future episodes of The Convergence and allows us to reach a bigger and broader audience.